Finished my summer course, uh, had to nail that A down, and uh, going to New York next week, so that'll hey. be a, a vibe. And then mostly hiking, getting out. I, uh, seeing so you're not going to the city, friends. right? You're going to like upstate? Nah, yeah, I go to the Finger Lakes region. You going near, to Times uh, Square, bro? Cornell. Nah, Brian. Ooh, right. Cornell. You trying to copy that student government model uh good memory bro yo so i'm doing all right but i can't be as good as jordan you know first first this job opening comes up in new york you know giuliani gets this barred and now i see there's a job opening in dc got yeah, his, right. his legal license suspended i just My broke goodness. like two hours ago you better go catch a bag jordan where else does he uh, practice law ukraine suspended <laughs> <laughs> that's tough yeah i don't know i heard he was uh he was he wasn't too happy about that new york one either obviously not yeah. i mean you go from taking down the mob to losing your fucking bar bum bum you just have to think about like what goes through someone's head to be like to make those decisions yeah like you were like known as like america's mayor and like all this stuff and then you just fucking jump off the glory of the republican party like falling apart right in front of you been two weeks since we did the last episode still ain't heard shit about the infrastructure getting ready to go into summer recess so I don't think anything's happening before then. Kind of major international news. A couple of world leaders going down. Luxembourg's prime minister has been put on uh, oxygen for COVID-related uh, issues. He's he's an interesting character. He's like I think the only openly gay um, national leader in the uh, in the uh, European Union. He had like some viral moments about his coming out story. So. Um, I don't know much about his his politics, but obviously hope, hope he recovers. And in Haiti, our uh, former colony until 1934, the president has been assassinated. Um, there was a previous assassination attempt on him about a year ago, and he made a big deal about it. Obviously, not great that he was killed, especially that country. You know, they they've had their issues uh, over the years, especially since. 2010 with the earthquake but even before that they have a pretty bad issue with separation between the elites and the and the poor folks yeah he was assassinated and you know he he tried to become president for life passed some legislation back in february so probably the best we can do is hope that this is what's good for the haitian people but expect to see some turmoil out of that country in the next next few years uh the biden administration has actually hired the attorney that wrote an opinion piece uh, stating the legal rights that the president has to forgive uh, student loan debt single-handedly by himself. Department of Education has now hired her. It's not clear which role she's in yet. That actually didn't make a lot of major headlines. It was on Forbes if anybody wants to check it out. Um, but she's been hired at a role at the uh, Department of Education. So that could be potentially good news, but also it's a Democratic Party, so don't get your hopes up. But there should be some news coming soon because the uh, pause on the student loan debts that ends at the end of September uh, so they either have to extend that or hopefully give us some more productive information. Uh, Jordan, you kind of got some judicial updates for us. My headline of the week will be that uh, Justice Stephen Breyer hired clerks for the after for the next term, the next October term. The law clerks are essentially it's just like really prestigious position that new attorneys get to work with judges. They work as judges assistants essentially, so they help write opinions and things like that. So. I think the fact that he hired clerks for the next term uh, indicates that he's planning on staying for the next term. So no, no, no sign of him retiring anytime soon. Um, typically, you wouldn't hire clerks and then leave because your replacement isn't obligated to keep your clerks. So that would be really shitty to like hire people and then be like, oh, never mind. So unfortunately, this is looking like Justice Breyer will be hanging on for at least one more term. And, you know, I have to assume he's not going to step down. I mean, him stepping down at the end of next term puts it at next summer. And I don't know, ahead of the midterms, I'm not quite sure what that looks like in a, a Senate world. Republicans would, uh, I think Republicans would convince Joe Manchin to abolish the filibuster just so that they could like change rules of the Senate to block Biden from getting a Supreme Court nominee in three months before a midterm election because that's completely unconstitutional. 
after talking with my constituents, I know they have traditional American values and, you know, this is just the right thing to do. Yeah. So, I mean, Justice Breyer, I don't know, I guess the whole thing that we was, we saw with Justice Ginsburg and like she had been in like not great health for a while, you know, lots of instances of her being hospitalized and a few instances of cancer while she was on the court. We don't really see the same with Breyer. Like he seems to be in better health, but at the same time, you know, so what happened with Ginsburg with her passing away in an election year right before the election and still causing a, a havoc and, you know, the, the Republicans got to put on one more justice for Breyer. It's like, well, I mean, if he's doing all right, that's fine. But then he is like 81 or something like that. Like he's pretty old. They just kind of makes you question on like, well, at what point do we have our justices? Do we say like, hey, you got to retire? I mean, they are life appointments. Like how much should we leave that in their hands of determining when they should step down or not? Because sometimes justices are like really good about recognizing their own health needs and their ability to serve on the court. Like uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall stepped down off the court um, two years before his passing due to some health concerns. But then we see instances of justices staying on the court and then dying from health, really, you know, health complications like Justice Ginsburg. So yeah, Justice Breyer probably here to stay for at least one more term. Uh, any Trash. thoughts about that, you guys? Uh, term limits, 25 years. Outdated. People like to bring this up with the Second Amendment argument that they weren't thinking about AR-15s back in 1776. What was life expectancy in like 1776? Like 45 maybe, if you were white. <laughs> 40, 45. So I'm like, dude. I, part of me is like, wow, y'all didn't put term limits on this. So like you really set this up to fail. But then it's also like, I can't put, I mean, you've created like the greatest nation ever out of ashes. So I can't put all this expectation on you. Like you didn't somebody with a life expectancy of like 50 wasn't thinking, Oh, some old geezer at 85 is going to be up there holding up the damn democracy of the entire country, you know, refusing to step down. So what a flex, what a flex, like, Hey bro, I'm 81, but I ain't retiring. Like you can't, it's like Dr. <laughs> bro. He's just up there like doing his thing. And it's like, bro, you shouldn't be though. You, you probably shouldn't be. I know it's like overused on the internet, but like I just feel triggered after the Ginsburg thing. It's like, not again. Don't do it to us again. I mean, I have to say I have met Justice Breyer. I met him in 2018. And he was like, I I, I have to say, like listening to him talk versus like when I would watch speeches of Ginsburg or something, like there's a distinct difference in their ability to like maybe be cognizant and like their ability to recall past, you know, like he seems pretty, pretty, pretty solid. So I have to give him that. Like, I don't think he's to compare his health or anything like that to Ginsburg, I think would be a disservice. I think he is, you know, of sound mind and body, but he is getting up there and, you know, <laughs> things happen. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's the same question of like, well, what do we, if is term limits, what solves this? Because I mean, let's look at Joe Biden. I mean, he's kind of old, you know, like, is it a term limit thing? Is it an age limit Don't thing? You talk about FDR like that. It's going to be our savior. <laughs> I was going to say with the with the term limit thing. So then you would say by that odd odds, hopefully that the twenty five year thing they would be staggered enough. Their appointments would be staggered enough that in a perfect scenario there wouldn't be any favoritization by just the happen of chance that these terms all of a sudden come up in like certain years or whatever that a, a more party of is in more control or whatever. I would still say that like the parties wouldn't be responsible enough to leave it alone to chance of just saying like, Hey, 25 year terms, no matter what year you're elected in that like Republicans or Democrats still would start whining. They're like, that's not fair. Like the last three seats have come up when so-and-so has controlled the Senate or so-and-so has controlled the house. So I even still then like, even if we went to a turn-based system, there would be so much whining and complaining from like a power complex side of things uh, that I think that they would like immediately pass legislation to get rid of it. The solution I've seen that I would prefer, or if I had to pick one to endorse, is I think it's 18-year term limits, but it works out It works out that they are up every four years. Um, so at least one, pre you know, if you're president, you're going to get to appoint one Supreme Court justice. If you're president two terms, you get two. That feels the most fair, right? So, I mean, we typically, our presidents go back and forth, back and forth. So we would assume that then our, our appointees would go back and forth. And an 18 year term limit is long enough that it's, you're kind of outlasting any like political issues of the day, right? You're not gonna get caught up in, you know, whatever the hot topic is of someone who's presidential term. 
So I, I think that's one I endorse is an 18 year term limit so that it works out that there's somebody up every four. And how you would work that in now is it would just be like starting with new appointments. So it would take us a while to phase that out. And then probably, you know, somebody might have to serve less than 18 years or more than 18 years to like get us to a solid way that that works. But I think that seems the most fair to me. And that would, that seems the most like what the founders were thinking about having like these neutral people, if they're going to serve, you need them to serve more than four, four, eight, even 12 years. You need them to serve some significant amount of time so that they, they are serving as these like neutral decision makers. Yeah. I think the, uh, the 18 years too is a good point. You said on that, that's, pl- that's plenty of time to essentially overstay your welcome. I think that's also a good point to highlight too, that the founding fathers, when they were kind of creating this framework, didn't even understand like generational differences. Like, I think obviously that was a thing, like my kids act different than I did when I was a child and so on, but there wasn't some, I don't know, this would fall under sociology, but some type of actual study of how dynamics change generations and, and what the generation endures and experiences shapes their beliefs and outcomes. And so I just, I, it just wasn't a huge issue at the time with everything else that their environment, you have to think to the environment they were trying to create this country and to think about, oh, one day these judges are going to be seen as quote out of touch with, you know, the, the majority voting block in their country. So again, this is why I, I can't stand as a textualist that, that drive me crazy. Cause I'm like, to me, like you can make whatever kind of argument, but there's just no justifiable way when you introduce common sense into an idea that that document was meant to be read verbatim and never changed and built upon. It's just mind-boggling to me that anybody would try to, to defend that or live by that. Yeah, and I think also with the whole 18-year thing, you then don't have this push to like put in the youngest justices that you can. And that's not to say that younger judges or lawyers can't be Supreme Court justices, because I, I don't think that that's true. But I think this, particularly that we've seen under the Trump administration, like this rush to put in judges, not just at the Supreme Court, but District Court, Court of Appeals of like that are like 32. Or if we look at the ones that he has appointed, I mean, Kavanaugh and Justice Barrett are, they're young compared to, to typical Supreme Court appointees, which doesn't mean that they're not capable. But I think if we can take the whole incentive to put young people on the court, then we really can get back to an idea where we're like looking at who's the best person for the job, not like who's going to hold the job the longest and like achieve the agenda I want for the longest. We have those term limits in place. You can, I don't know. I think you you just take out an element of the, let's play this as a political game versus, you know, what the court is supposed to do. So that it also provides that incentive that we don't have to just put on the youngest person that we can find who's remotely qualified. And again, that's not saying that Kavanaugh or Barry are not qualified. It's just, I don't know. I don't think that we should really even be thinking about ages, you know, the age of someone when determining who should be the best fit. As long as you think they could serve the 18 years, that's really the only calculation you should be making. Yeah, I agree with that. Kind of piggybacking on how you were talking about this trending towards like picking younger candidates and things like that. It's not necessarily a good thing. I would like to highlight too that it almost seems that, you know, you can, Jordan, you can test this more specifically, but essentially to make your way to the Supreme Court, you move your way up through district level or whatever the specific, you have a a chain of command essentially that you almost move up through and eventually get your way to the Supreme Court. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, Jordan, but it seems like recently they've kind of, even that ladder has sped up quickly, which is almost like, okay, like you're supposed to spend your time in in these courts and work your way up and learn different levels of law and things like that. And we're just trying to fast track people because they look like, oh, you may be a loyal candidate or you may be loyal to the party or you represent, you know, uh, hot topic ideas that I like that we're going to race them up the, up the line. To me, it's a double damage because you're getting somebody who's young in there who's going to be on the bench for 30 years and be out of touch, but you're also necessarily sacrificing experience and knowledge, which is a huge part, I think, of what the Supreme Court is. It's not just the judicial system, but it's also something that's philosophical in its nature. The most powerful court on this planet. I mean, you could you could almost say just because what it represents. So the ideas and the decisions that come out of that building have ramifications for the entire globe. So you really want somebody who's kind of very in touch with not just the court of law and what you know all this stands for, but is also very in touch with bigger ideas beyond things such as religion or basic, you know, human things that we fight over that are, you know, just minor hot topic arguments. So to me, that's also like a, a double-edged sword that you're going to kind of keep an eye on less experience and also, you know, bigger chances of being out of touch later down in their careers. Yeah, certainly. I, I think, I mean, so typically, so you have the district court level, then you have the court of appeals, 
for a circuit. So the fourth circuit or the fifth circuit, and then you have the Supreme Court. District level, you're looking, so like for instance, North Carolina, we have three districts, the Eastern, Middle and Western. And then we have various judges that sit in all three of those districts. And North Carolina is part of the fourth circuit, which includes, you know, like Virginia and some other states. And then there's the Supreme Court. So justices typically don't just like jump to the Supreme Court. They're usually chosen from circuit courts, so court of appeals. But the problem is like, how quickly are we moving people into those seats? So I'll use Justice Barrett. I mean, she got into her court of appeals seat in 2018, I believe, and from being a law professor. And again, like, I'm not going to say, that doesn't mean she's not a good judge, uh, but she, she wasn't, you know, she was a law professor, got her court of appeals judgeship, which was definitely purposeful by the Trump administration. They were already eyeing her to kind of move her up into the Supreme Court should an opening arise. And then she moves on to the Supreme Court two years later. And we can have a debate on like how much experience should you have as a judge before coming in? Should you have any, or as a federal judge, should you have any, do you need a lot? What does that mean? And I think that looks different for everyone. Obviously Justice Barrett is a very intelligent woman. And even though I disagree with her on many things, I'm not going to say that, you know, she's obviously like very well accomplished, but I mean, she's only been a judge for three years and she's on the Supreme Court. And we know, what do we think about that? You know, should someone who's only been a judge for three years be on the court? I don't know. That's a question that I'm not going to answer, but I would say particularly with the Trump administration, they made an effort to appoint all of these really young judges. Um, he also appointed a judge in the fourth circuit here. Um, and she sits, she sits in the Western district of North Carolina, who's also super young, like in her late thirties, early forties on the fourth circuit court of appeals, which is most circuit or court of appeals judges are, you know, very well established. Again, not saying that she's not qualified, but that's just something, you know, that is just different from what we've do seen you think, before. Um, do, do you think they face like any type of pushback from like their colleagues, like the other on the bench, like any type of like, and eh, no snubbing or anything? I don't know. I mean, I would probably say not. I mean, I don't know. Lawyers, we like to think of ourselves as like really respectful and really like etiquette and like this is just the way things done so I would say no but like it is definitely a learning curve especially if you haven't practiced if you're not a litigator if you don't go to court to then be in a judge seat like that's a that's a big environment change that you have to adjust to uh Justice Barrett was a law professor and then she's you know jumping into when she got her court of appeals judgeship now she has to you know, remember what it's like to be a litigator and like know the rules of evidence and know the federal laws and things like that. So it's a completely different world to be in court, even no matter what kind of lawyer you are. If you're not a litigator, then you're on an appeal battle when you become a judge. I mean, you can see that even here, you know, in North Carolina, we have elected judge, uh, all judges are elected. So and anybody can run. So just because someone is now a judge doesn't mean that they have any experience in criminal law in North Carolina. <laughs> and so you have to, you know, clients and other practicing attorneys have to like sit there for that learning curve of like teaching them how to to run court you know is that fair to the judicial system to have a judge that might not exactly realize what's going on what's interesting to me is like the conversation isn't so much about whether judges should have credentials or whether they should be credentialed like both sides of this argument have an interest in meritocracy and in some way of proving the merits of whoever's taking these judgeships. But it's about like the definition of who's being credentialed. When people say like Amy Coney Barrett is not, you know, maybe qualified or she wasn't qualified to have that Supreme Court seat when she took it, it's about our definition of what qualifies her. And and I think this goes to like very much the Trump philosophy of alternative fact and the Trump ideology someone's mindset, someone's political views are qualification enough. And, and again, obviously being a law professor is a qualification. Being a lawyer, <laughs> being barred, going to law school is a qualification. But you know what we're trying to have is a more nuanced conversation about, hey, maybe experience should be part of that qualification too. Uh, I, just, I think it's interesting how much they have to lean on ideology and worldview as compared to working your way through the system and, and, and going up that way. Absolutely. I, I, I struggle with this because I think it's important to like, for you to be a litigator, like, or at least have litigation experience, like you need to know what it's like to argue in a courtroom, I think to then be the neutral arbiter of a courtroom. I don't know, like, that just feels right to me. But at the same time, like, I, I don't necessarily think that everyone on the Supreme Court should be like, have like 20 years of a judge experience, right? Because we want 
different people of different backgrounds in there so that, you know, we, we have different points of view. So I don't necessarily, I don't want everyone to have the same background, but at the same time, there should be some kind of even ground where we're like, okay, at least everyone's coming in with this experience. And then it, and then it differs once we get past that point. It's just very interesting because if you, if you look at the constitution, there is no, uh, there's no qualifications set forth to be a, you know, a Supreme Court justice. You don't need to be technically don't really need to be a lawyer now. And, you know, there was an instance of, I think it was George Bush that tried or flirted with this idea of appointing a Supreme Court justice that wasn't a lawyer. And that got shut down, shut down completely. And like, I mean, I don't know. I feel like if you're on the Supreme Court, you should probably be a lawyer, but maybe it is worth like, should we have a social worker in that room? Should we have a, you know, somebody, you know, a scientist and engineer, like, I don't know. And that's something that we've kind of set those parameters because the, the constitution doesn't, doesn't call for it. I was going to say George uh, was probably going to appoint uh, Saudi oil emirate. Got to secure that black that black gold, baby. Uh, speaking of black gold, we're out of Afghanistan. Not until like August or September, but we're pretty much out of there. We uh, we left Bagram, so we're pretty much out. We just dipped out in the middle of the night. Literally. They're <laughs> like, hey, we weren't here for uh, the past 20 years. Or yeah, so uh, I think last time I saw um, about a third of the district slash counties in Afghanistan had been uh, retaken by the Taliban. Uh, another third are contested and then another third are currently held by the U.S. supported government. ISIS has like one province. When you look at the yeah. map, they have this yeah. like little, little dot on but there, you know. Something to keep an eye on. Definitely a, a huge possibility that something similar to uh, the birth of ISIS comes out of this. So there's going to be a huge power vacuum I don't think a lot of people are very hopeful that the government, the U.S.-backed government of Afghanistan is going to last very long or be very effective. So definitely pay attention to that. There could be some uh, real-world repercussions coming out of the Middle East for international news. Um, sorry to sidetrack there, but we also had a couple more Supreme Court uh, cases that came down for anybody that listened last episode when we discussed the four or five, I believe, big ones so far. Uh, we still had the Voting Rights Act and a couple more that we're waiting on uh, on that episode. We got some unfortunate news uh, about the voting rights coming out of Arizona. Uh, Jordan had a hot take that we all hope would be true. Unfortunately, it wasn't. We do live in the great United States of America with a bipartisan. She shot system. her shot. She, she shot, shot her my shot. Best. I tried my best. And not only was I wrong, it was like the person who wrote the opinion was like the most wrong person. <laughs> the, <laughs> the complete opposite direction. The voting rights case, so Brnovich versus the Democratic National Committee. So here they were challenging to Arizona's new voting laws, um, one concerning out of precinct voting. So if you vote at the wrong precinct, uh, you had to cast a provisional ballot. And then like after the, the election, before the law, they would just kind of determine if your ballot should be valid or not. And so this new law just said, if you vote at a precinct, then your law or your ballot is going to be kind of cast aside. And then the other law was, you know, unless you are like a close family member um, of someone casting like a absentee ballot, you can't deliver the ballot for them. Um, and so this case was challenged because they were saying that this, these laws uh, went against the Voting Rights Act because they disproportionately affected minority populations, particularly black and Hispanic communities. Justice Alito, so you already know where this is going. Justice Alito in a, writing for the court in a 6-3 majority said, no, this doesn't violate the, the Voting Rights Act. It's good to go. Any discriminatory effect that these law ha laws had would be, you know, very small and not affect, <laughs> have a huge impact on the electorate. And said that, you know, hey, the state has an interest in voting and that these new restrictions didn't place any kind of undue burden on voting that don't already exist to begin with. So, you know, the law stands and really what this does is, you know, while these particular laws might not sound, you know, too, too crazy, um, we know that other states are passing even more restrictive uh, voting laws like Georgia and Texas. And what the court's saying, hey, these are good to go. I mean, this is essentially giving the green light on these other states to continue to pass these more restrictive voting laws that are even more restrictive than these two particular Arizona laws. Justice Kagan uh, wrote a you know, a beautiful dissent that I know Garrison was a big fan of. And the dissent, they essentially just said, well, you know, this isn't, they essentially saying that the court wasn't really 
recognizing the history of the Voting Rights Act and what the Voting Rights Act sought to do and that the court was essentially undermining the very purpose of the act by upholding these laws. Um, so it was a really, really great dissent. I think it was up there on par with Ginsburg's dissent in uh, Shelby v. Holder. So the, the, the law or the court case that essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act. In fact, Justice Kagan's dissent was longer than Justice Alito's majority opinion. And, you know, just for all my lawyers out there, Justice Alito likes to ramble on and on. So that's actually a pretty impressive feat by Justice Kagan. So, I mean, disapp- a disappointing loss for us, for sure, uh, for uh, the Voting Rights Act. And we were hoping to kind of curb these restrictive voting right or voting or access to voting laws that are appearing in these primary, in these battleground states, these southern states. But I don't know, maybe as if we get a more restrictive law, we can take it to the court and maybe push them in the right direction of saying like, hey, this is this is violating the Voting Rights Act. But I do I do think Kagan's dissent was spot on in saying that the court's essentially saying that the Voting Rights Act or the writing, Voting Rights Act wasn't, it, the spirit of it is essentially gone and been gutted by the court. Yeah, I like that kind of language. I think the other thing what I really liked about her, that's the kind of the theme of her argument was, Republicans, as are one of their last fail safes, they love to blame the system. Like, oh, I'm not a bad person. The system just lets me do this. You know, fix the law, fix the law, lets me do this. But then when it comes time for them to benefit from something, they'll neglect that same system or they'll operate in a way that likes to think that their decisions exist in a vacuum that have no political or societal repercussions. And I really liked how she kind of hit that point home to say that you sit up here so naive, basically in the highest court of the land and gut, number one, gut historic legislation uh, that led to, at least on a face value, black people being able to finally be considered equal Americans to now just, I don't know, just living, just acting like it just doesn't, that these decisions don't let people run rampant and state legislatures that are controlled by you know, fringe radicals in, in some of these states. It's just really disappointing, but I thought she did a good job. You know, even if worst case scenario, the, the country crashes and burns, it I have some solace knowing that dissents were written in this way. So at least, you know, thousands of years down the road, if somebody looks back on our once great empire, they can see that there was actually some logic here. It just unfortunately wasn't the prevailing voice. I think what I hate is it's like, this is not, how decision-making science works like decision-making science would be you know either you enact this policy you collect data over the next few years and if that data demonstrates that uh, there was a significant reduction in black turnout or other metrics then you would repeal the policy but the way the timing of it all is you can't wait to collect the data because people have to vote and they have to vote soon uh, before you would have, you know, just the time to collect the sheer amount to make any case. And so like when the Supreme Court makes a decision like this, it's, I don't know, it's always really baffling to me because it's like you you don't have data. You don't have any way of saying objectively whether this is going to have a racial impact or not. And we're just going to have to see how it plays out over the next few years. And I think the hope, of course, is that as that state changes, and it is changing pretty rapidly, becoming more blue, the hope is that over time, you know, maybe the state legislature will reflect that. And, you know, maybe the policies are good and you don't see a turnout effect, but maybe you get that data that shows, hey, this is discriminatory, this is racist, and you can change your decision. It's it's just upsetting that they have to make decisions in such like an obtuse and ridiculous way. Definitely. I mean, and we'll see, I think we'll be able to get a good indication of exactly what you're saying, Logan. Um, You know, John Kelly's seat is up in the midterms. Um, So we're going to see, you know, who, who, does he, you know, does he win re-election or is he going to get replaced with a Republican? So I think that'll be a really good indicator of exactly the effect that this voting law is happening, especially when we see the, the turnout, voter turnout. I guess I'll just hit on one more. So that's going to be Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta. So a case, another case out of California, you know, California ripe for Supreme Court cases. So there in California passed a state law that said that nonprofit organizations had to disclose their kind of like their highest donors um, to the state. It's still, it was confidential. So not something that would have been publicly published, but, you know, disclosing their they're high donors for the purpose of the, you know, they want to, they're saying that they wanted to track fraud or any other illegal activities that might happen regarding donations to nonprofits. 
And Americans for Prosperity was one of the nonprofits that essentially didn't comply. And, you know, the case goes up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says that the state cannot, they can't compel nonprofit organizations to disclose donor lists, even high donor lists, because that, is, that puts an undue burden on the donor's First Amendment rights. Tech, I, mean, I guess technically the their right to free speech, but really their freedom of association. Um, so you have like the right to associate with different political organizations or organizations generally. And they're saying that, you know, this law is, infringes on their ability to do that, even if only the state's going to be able to see who, who donated to these nonprofits. That was written by Justice Roberts, um, I believe. Let me just make sure. Yes, Justice Roberts wrote the majority. And that was 6-3 as well. So the, the liberals did dissent and say that their argument was that that this nonprofit didn't really show a, a First Amendment burden. Like they didn't say like, hey, this is the burden that we're being felt. And I guess in some ways that makes sense because Americans for them specifically as a nonprofit is not really the burden. I think the court is considering the burden. The burden the court's considering is on the donor, not the the, the recipient organization. But yeah, and so what's the big deal about this? Well, okay, so any mega donors to these big nonprofits or other organizations that might be politically focused, we're not going to be able to see, you know, is Jeff Bezos donating a billion dollars to a certain organization? Obviously, that's going to have some kind of impact on what they're doing. And so some people saw this as a, you know, another loss for, you know, election donation, voter transparency when it comes to these organizations and where they're getting their money, their money from. I kind of think this is right. Um, and the court and even the the nonprofit organizations refer, references a case from back in the eh, you know, 50 years ago involving the NAACP, where the state of Alabama was trying to get rid of the NAACP in their state. And they were trying to get the NAACP to have to disclose their membership list. Um, and it's, you know, essentially say like, these are our members and the court stepped in and said, hey, you can't do that. That violates the First Amendment because people have the right to associate with different organizations privately. You know, if they want to be anonymous, they should have the ability to be anonymous. And so that's kind of the principle that the court is kind of pulling in here just in a different way. And I, and I as much as I think that donor transparency is important, I do think I think the ruling in this is right. I think given the, you know, the precedent that the court has set. If you donate to a, a nonprofit organization, you should have the ability to stay anonymous, even if it's just in a communication between the org organization and the state. You know, you might not be it might not be published for everyone to see, but I still think you have a right from the state to be able to to not disclose who you donate to if you don't want them to know. My answer is I agree with you, but Citizen United should not have been passed like what what makes this so shitty is that citizens united was passed which stated that corporations essentially have these same rights and it's like you know i can again i can take my slap on the wrist and be like okay this is where democracy and how it's supposed to be doesn't work out in my favor because i'd love to be like oh no rich people want to donate all this money to organizations we should be able to see that but i can be like no okay you deserve that privacy yada 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 but again corporations shouldn't have that but i, I think that the fact that the supreme court passed Citizens United several years ago and then did this. It's just like, you know, just hammering the nail even further into we are no longer a democracy where everything's ran and controlled by rich people. An oligarchy. Would, right. And I and I would I would make a point to this that there's a there's among sports teams in the military and yada yada yada. There's just saying you're only as strong as your weakest link. Well I think that translate very translates very well over to the people that make decisions in this country. And you notice that any of the people that make that really have the reins as far as making structural change in the country they're all essentially wealthy people they don't none of them come from average walks of life or if they did it was so long ago they don't they don't remember it they don't know what it is in, in current day status so you have people that are making the rules and making us play by these rules that don't know they don't have to live in the world that we live in um, and so i really think it shows when you when you put it next to that saying to say you're only as strong as the weakest link and it's like well you know we're going to keep undercutting black people and minorities in the middle class in this country we're never going to get anywhere especially as international competition advances as well yeah i'd agree the well first off let's note the utter lack of surprise that alabama tried to get rid of the naacp yeah i mean i i agree with with you both of you i mean the decision seems right and i of course i'd want my privacy protected if i was donating but you know we talked about this last week it's like it's hard to it's hard to balance the want for free association 
with the very real class division in this country and the reality that this ruling protects and enshrines class division even further. If that's the way the Supreme Court is going to be for the next decade plus, you know, this ruling may be one where the the question of it is kind of on the edge. It's hard to say, is it good, is it bad? But I think we'll see more that tip to the, oh no, they're just protecting rich people side of things. Yeah, and uh, speaking, you brought up textualism earlier, Garrison. I mean, do we think the founders contemplated mega corporations being considered people under the First Amendment? Like, no. Um, and that just kind of goes to the point that even textualists, like they don't give a shit about what the constitution says. Like, I think there are certain justices that do really value the role of the court and the purpose of it and what the founders intended the court to be. And then there are people who are on the court for their own agenda. And, you know, it's, you know, they're essentially picking the outcome they want and then they cherry pick the law to get to that outcome. And so, I mean, I think if there's anyone out there who thinks the Supreme Court is just this really neutral body that just makes decisions, the answer is no, <laughs> they are not. Um, and there are some people on that court that care about the court's legitimacy, but there are other people on that court that only care about their own personal beliefs and how the best way to, to advance those beliefs uh, onto the country as a whole. Yeah, no matter what, uh, you can fight for legitimacy all you want, but when it comes down to the people that write their paychecks and got them to where they're at, they're definitely going to protect them. So uh, speaking of mega donors having undue influence, I think we have some North Carolina news. Nicole Hannah-Jones, she's a uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, recipient of the MacArthur Genius Award. And she's a she got her master's at UNC Chapel Hill and was recently offered their night chair of journalism in their school of journalism. And uh, she was rejected tenure uh, by the Board of Trustees at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It later came out that a donor uh, who the School of Journalism is named after, he gave $25 million to Chapel Hill. Uh, he had asked for her not to be. Okay, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> Somebody wrote a check to a college for $25 million, dude. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, and, now I've, I grew up a UNC fan. I know the power of the Rams Club, but I just want to highlight the fact that somebody has that ability while like veterans don't have homes and kids go to sleep hungry. Continue. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, no doubt. And uh, anyone who's been to a UNC game, uh, you know, there's two types of fans. We don't stand up for much besides the wine and the cheese. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and Coach K's uh, farewell tour. Um, so it came out, I don't know who leaked it. The Board of Trustees revisited their decision, offered her tenure, and um, Nicole has turned them down and she's going to Howard. I think I wanted to talk about this story because a lot of our listeners probably have seen this as like a New York Times headline or a Washington Post headline, uh, and they don't really understand the context, which is that the Republican Party has slowly been taking over and has taken over the higher education system in North Carolina since McCrory was elected in 2012. The majority of the Board of Governors, the majority of most Board of Trustees are uh, conservatives. Um, they started by firing Tom Ross, who is the UNC system president. They then hired Margaret Spellings, who was George W. Bush's secretary of education. She did a surprisingly good job. So of course they fired her after, uh, after she stood up against HB2 and said she wouldn't enforce it in the UNC system. They fired her and they, they brought in some North Carolina conservative guy. I don't, I don't know who he is. He's, he's not well known in education, but I don't know. It's just really interesting. I think as all of us who care about education and everyone should in a liberal democracy, go read your Thomas Dewey if you haven't already. Yeah, it's it's a real problem. And it's 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 sad, I think, most for the students of UNC that Nicole, after all she went through, felt she couldn't teach there, even though it was her alma mater. And she's at Howard now where her impact is going to be big, but very different than it would have been at Chapel Hill. I think it's also important to point out that this, the position she was offered at Chapel Hill typically comes with tenure. Like sh the people preceding her in that position were granted tenure. And like Logan said, this, this woman is very well accomplished, uh, won multiple awards. It's, it's not like she was just some like first year professor who tenure wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have expected tenure. Like she is very well accomplished and should have, it should have been no brainer. She was the, her fellow faculty members recommended her for tenure and it was really just the board of trustees that 
that block that in a position that should have come with tenure to begin with. I have to commend her. I'm sure there are going to be people out there that are like, oh, we put this, there's this whole fuss about her getting tenure. The board finally gets together, gives it to her and she leaves. And I, I just want to, I think I just want to point in that she, in, in an interview that she had gave today, uh, she stated that, you know, it's not her job to, to fix Chapel Hill and fix the issues of Chapel Hill. And I, I just think that's really, really important to, to look at, you know, as a, a, a black person and a black woman, you know, I, I think it's important that it's very easy for our people of color, particularly in positions of prestige to feel like they need to fill a hole or to feel like they need to do something for, to be a symbol or to, just to kind of, I guess, represent something in a given space or environment. And sometimes you just have to do what's best for you. And what was best for her was to go to Howard. You know, why I can completely understand why would you want to work in an environment that you had to fight tooth and nail to get something that you already deserved. And, you know, to be then, you know, start working in that space where you kind of are at the scrutiny of the board of trustees and, and of that university who could, you know, at any point give you a hard time about anything. I, I would much rather go to a, a university and a workplace that's going to, to kind of accept you for who you are and give you what you deserve and give you the space to, to research and, and to write the way that you want. And so I just think it's important to say, cause I'm sure there are gonna be people out there that are like, well, she finally got it. Why would she leave? You, it's not her job to, to deal with the issues that UNC has been facing when it comes to racial equality. And I, I have to commend her. I think that took a lot of guts, not only to continue the fight for tenure, but also to say, nah, I'm going to Howard. And, you know, she's going to be in great company at Howard. And I'm, I, I think she'll do a great job there. And I think it also will push, hopefully push UNC to kind of really face, you know, the inequities that they have in their, in their faculty, in their student body and their administration to, you know, how can we prevent something like this from happening in the future? I mean, cause they look like idiots right now. Right. And this is going to be really bad press for them. And as a, you know, UNC being the school that they are, you know, after all of the, the statue stuff that they were dealing with, like they really, you know, they, they need some good press. So hopefully this kind of forces them to look in the mirror and, you know, think about making some changes. Yeah, I mean, one thing it has me thinking about, too, is like North Carolina was so far ahead of the country in terms of some of these policies like voter restriction, uh, anti-transgender legislation, um, cracking down on higher education. And so, like, if we're seeing the whiplashes of that now, I mean, I, th I think we should really expect to see more of the same in four years across the country um, because that that's been the case. And it's really sad that like every time we take a step forward, like we got McCrory out of office, we had the state Supreme Court, we slowly rebuilt. Spellings was hired because she worked for Bush, but ended up being like a moderate whose focus was actually education. And every time like it's like, OK, something's going good for us. It's like they take us down a peg. And I know I know Chapel Hill in particular has suffered a lot under what our state has gone through. I've, I've heard from people close to the UNC system board of governance that there's been intentional efforts to quote unquote, take them down a peg. They felt they got too too cocky, too independent to the rest of the system. And yeah, I just, I feel bad for that university. I feel bad for Nicole. I feel bad for the students. And uh, yeah, I, I hope people in other states can stop what's happening, what we see in the news every day before it reaches this point where you're, you're losing out because of your actions. Yeah, part of me uh, likes the decision she made to go to Howard. Um, there was kind of a a theme that I was hoping would take off, uh, I think back during last summer, during the BLM movements and maybe even leading up to that, uh, that was in the NCA athletics that was trying to say as far as compensation and attention goes, and uh, basically these athletes that are going to these big flagship state institutions and then bringing in all this kind of income through athletics and not receiving anything for them to start going to HBCUs or start considering those. And you'll kind of notice this trend now, a lot of kids, especially if they're national talent, they're getting offered from schools all over the country that they'll do like a top five and they'll shout out like an HBCU on their top five. They'll take an official visit, you know, to that college, try to get them some free publicity and things like that, or get some attention thrown their way. So I was really hoping that movement would take off. I think it's done a little bit, but what I really liked about that movement, uh, while I think the minority communities in this country need massive investment, I always do like it when I see talent going back to service its its own community. So while I think you know she could have had a, a monumental platform at Chapel Hill, 
I think her going to Howard and benefiting those students there at Howard will really pay off in the long run as far as 20 or 30 years from now, the proteges that she has in the making. Yeah. I mean, it, it can be when, especially when you're in a space that you don't look like the people around you, I, it can be exhausting, right? It, to have to constantly be the, you know, the, the person of color or to be the person providing a different uh, viewpoint or whatever. And some people are really like cool with that and want to do that and feel empowered by that. And other people, it is draining. So already just being in a space, if she was given tenure off the bat, that would be a complicated space to be in. But then to add on top of, of, of that, you know, this whole tenure debacle where, you know, two times it was delayed, the decision to give her tenure. And then they finally gave it to her at the last second after all of this like national media attention, they decided to give it to her. I can imagine that like, who wants to be in an environment like that? Like, especially someone as accomplished and, you know, well-known as her, like go somewhere where you're going to be appreciated and when you don't feel like you have to be a token in some sense. And so I, I respect that a lot. I mean, she, she, I respect that she's doing what's best for her and that she, um, she, you know, kind of was able to speak on at a national platform about her decision. And I have to give her props for, she, um, a local North Carolina reporter, I think at WRAL, um, when she initially was, this whole tenure thing began, she kind of gave him, you know, inter- talked with him and he published her story, like one of the first people to publish it before it made national news. And she went right back to him once with her new decision and to, to, to kind of give an exclusive interview to her and I, I to him about her decision. And I, I just think, you know, that, that she's even thinking about that on top of everything. Like she I don't know. I, I think you can tell that she's not really doing, she wasn't in all of this just for national attention on herself, right? She's just trying to, to get what she deserves and do what's best for her. And I think that's really, you know, important and good to see. Is it time for a good guy, bad guy, guy? Good guy, bad guy, guy. Hey. I like it. Good guy, this is a little somber. So I think we're all aware of the condo that collapsed in Miami, Florida. I think roughly about a, about a week or so ago today, essentially a national disaster just highlights obviously the, the major issue that we have with infrastructure, even though that may have been a private building, I think just goes to show the lack of attention that's been, that's being given to these kinds of things. And to think that in 2021, uh, in the great country of America, that something like this is capable of happening where uh, God forbid it essentially is going to look like over a hundred people are, are going to be casualties of this. Uh, it's, it's just really devastating and very disappointing. And I think this is events like this are really going to have a huge effect on our generation as far as like the embarrassment I think that we face on a national stage when it comes to things like this. I also think it's why we're much more in touch with the U.S. in a critical light than maybe generations previous to us. But I think all everybody on the podcast just wants to say that uh, our, good, our good guy of the week is definitely going to be the first responders and any other service really that's gone out to that collapsed uh, condominium to try to rescue or you know recover any of these family members, pets, you know, mothers, fathers, children, siblings, you know, they've gone through insane hoops to, to really just even be able to do a simple recovery mission. I know they had to stop a couple of times for safety measures. They had to take down uh, the other part of the building, I think about a day or two ago. And then now they obviously had the hurricane slash tropical storm coming through that area. So just wanted to, you know, give a huge shout out to them as always. That takes a dedicated type of person to be able to pull that thing off. So um, you guys are our true heroes. So thank you. Good guy of the week. Who's doing bad guy? Oh, he's your boys. Logan's got it. So bad guy, frequent listeners, close fans, Athena heads, if you will, whatever y'all want to call yourselves, you know about emergent biosolutions. You know, they botched a hundred million doses of the vaccine. I bought 15 of their stock (laughs) (laughs) right before they plunged. Well, you know who else sold a bunch of their stock right before they plunged? I'm going to guess the CEO. Oh Uh... boy. If only it was. The CEO, uh, and you know, the CEO, you know, he sold 42 million. Uh, you know, he, he's a bad guy. Their uh, board member, let's see, what's his name? Louis Sullivan, who was George H.W.'s uh, former health secretary. Uh, he sold 3 million. And it's looking like there's another 60 million accounting between board members and execs. Uh, a law firm uh, has partnered with an accounting firm to begin a formal investigation of insider trading. So, uh, all emergent biosolutions, you are not BioNTech, you are not Pfizer, uh, you're trash. You botched 100 million doses of the vaccine 
And then when you tried to make up for it, you only filled 40 million of that order. Emergent biotech, you're your trash, your grifters, you uh, you rob people during a panic. So uh, bad guys. All right, I guy of the week. I don't know if we've done them as our. If we've ever, I don't think like, we have because they're always in our sign off. They're they're yeah. so bad that we have to put a warning in our sign off every episode. But this week they're actually bad enough to get a spot and be in the sign off. Yeah. So Uh-oh. hot off the presses, you guys. Fox News will be, um, you know, creating their own weather channel because, you know, the weather channel is liberal bias. You can't you can't go figure out the path of a hurricane on the weather channel because that's just a bunch of liberal nonsense, fake news. You have to go to you're going to have to go to Fox News to figure out your weather, where the hurricanes are coming, where the tornadoes, where the droughts, where the fires. So Fox News starting their own weather channel. So that's got to be I guy because come on, weather. Uh, a sneak peek that me and Jordan talked about uh, previously was that it's there's not going to be any type of live radar maps or anything. It's just going to be Trump holding up the states with the Sharpie drawn hurricane paths. That's all it's going to be. So look forward to that. Uh, second thing, I want to give him a lot of credit because I think, as we all know, meteorology is like the only field that you could be wrong well over 50 percent of the time and still maintain your job. So the fact that they're going to tell the truth less than 50% of the time and still maintain their job by doing it with the weather is the perfect idea. Because whenever the Democrats come to kick them out and say they're peddling lies, they just say, hey, man, it's the weather. We can't always be right. Yeah, and you got to be like real careful on that channel because like you go on and you're like, it's raining cats and dogs today. And then the Q people will be like, oh my God, they went on there. Fox, Fox weather said it's raining cats and dogs. What's going on? This is a Democrat conspiracy. So I can't wait to hear all the DODs controlling the weather so that Republicans don't go vote or that. So Alabama has a drought. I think what'll be interesting is to see like exactly what this is going to look like. I'm mostly interested on like how much are they going to talk about climate change? What, how much of, climate change and their agenda on that is going to be part of this weather channel well no no i mean i guess i mean like their view on climate change like how much of this is going to be how much of this is just going to be like oh well the hurricanes have always been bad or like oh it's always been hot or you know like that kind of stuff and so that's really i think what concerns me is that this is just yet another medium that we're going to well, that it's just going to indoctrinate people into believing things that aren't true. And I mean, I guess if you're already watching Fox News, you might be like too far gone anyway. You're but. really excited right now because just it's like Apple. They just launched another product that's going to keep me even deeper ingrained in the community. It's it's just going to be big oil weather. I mean, you're literally going to have people <laughs> a different reality. Like it'll be like a category six hurricane outside and they'll be like, no, it's just, you know, just passing through. That's nothing new. Exxon said it's just a quick storm. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's pathetic bro the best thing that we could have then is cnn now needs to make a weather weather channel washington post weather huff post weather athena project weather athena project Ooh. weather we're gonna be sending garrison out to the coast i like it uh alabama <laughs> is no longer reporting live from alabama which is no longer a country <laughs> we're no longer a state Garrison will be out there in his raincoat. It's been eradicated. <laughs> hey, man, that shit that we went through in college, bro, you could put me out there. I've seen, we've seen some crazy shit. That's right. That's right. Uh, infrastructure is not really going anywhere, going into summer recess, so don't expect anything to get done probably before best case scenario or early August, but honestly, nothing probably till September. So, any, any Matt Gates news? Matt Gates. Um, yeah, so Matt Gates wants to bring Donald Trump back by. Uh, retaking the House in 2022 and then making Donald Trump the speaker. He then impeaches Biden. They convict him in the Senate. uh, And then Donald Trump then becomes uh, the president again. So Matt Gaetz is actively pushing that conspiracy theory. Uh, Keep an eye on that. That's a real, real strong chance of... uh, Keep an eye on that. Yeah. So that's actually when like uh, the two-thirds thing in the Senate actually comes into our hand because uh, I don't think you're going to find... 26 Democrats that'll impeach Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and then let Donald Trump uh, become the next president. But if you had a Matt Gates way, you would just take those seats and make them Republicans and then, you know, have a night that we probably just like burn a lot of black businesses and chase all the minorities out of town and then make Donald Trump president. That's Matt Gates's world. So that's your Matt Gates update for you. Matt Gates didn't have a lot of freedom left. I, I peg it at about two weeks. 
and he should have an indictment coming down. So I think he's just kind of like, you know, just throwing his last flails out there. Hang in there, Matt. You're going to look great in orange, buddy. <laughs> you heard it here first, y'all. <laughs> that's uh, Yeah, that's our Matt Gates updates. That's, that's everything I got. Um, can I ask a, can I ask a quick question? It's kind yeah. of on, it's a Florida, Florida question. Does Marco Rubio lose in 2022? What's her, what's the woman's name that announced she's running against him? I think she's got a pretty good shot. Uh, she's a, I don't know her name. I'm not Florida no, politics, but she's, she's in summer. the Senate, I think. Yeah. Oh, um, I say it's 50, 50. I think uh, incumbents in the Senate, they're just so hard to get rid of, but the party I think is getting tired of him. He's not really done a lot these last couple of years either. He went from like a, a top 10, like front facing of the party to kind of slipping, slipping back to a nobody. So I don't, I don't know how many favors he's got left to call in or how many uh, friends he's got left in high places, but I put it at 50, 50 right now, unless something else develops. Val Demings, I think. Val it's Demings. The- yeah. 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 And she's oh yeah. Pretty- she's legit. Yeah. She's doing pretty good fundraising, man. I think of stuff I've seen down here. She's, she's starting out the gate pretty strong. So yeah. So Big, big don't watch Fox News this week and don't watch that new fucking weather channel. Tucker don't Carlson do it. They spying on him. I promise you, the NSA has got a lot more important shit and a lot more high level people to spy on than Tucker Carlson. Uh, get your vaccine. Joe's still pushing you. We're at 67%. Need to get 3% to 70. Uh, some states are actually hitting that 90% threshold. Not Robinson County, though. Not Robinson no, County. And, uh, probably not North Carolina ever. Not Florida ever. <laughs> uh, pretty much. Pull up the electoral map of 2020, <laughs> the red hearts, herd <laughs> humidity. You know, it's crazy, bro. It was the same for what are the things you put babies in? Uh, the seats car you seats? put them in in cars? Yeah, car, car, seat. car seat laws. <laughs> Wait, no, no, no. They put my goddamn seats. baby in no, no fucking car seat. God he watches said, that baby. He said the seats you put them in in cars. Yeah. Car seats? Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, those ones. <laughs> those are the same. Bro, you look at the election map from 2000 and yes. states that pass car seat laws. It's yes. the same thing over and over again. Yeah, there's there's direct there's direct correlations across the country. Um, I've always loved the guide, the diagram that like splits the country up into like five basic regions. We're basically like five mini countries inside of one big country. And depending on what region you're from, that's how you're ideas and your opinions are influenced yeah you know rust belt south north west coast all that kind of shit so this um, is true but also all three of us are from the south and we love the south it's just we wish we i could. don't particularly love the south oh, i love i do I, I it just makes me sad because like i really enjoy the south it's just people are morons i think we i'm just we're just always like 20 years behind the rest of the country yeah. and like i just look longingly to like other I was born in Japan, which is like subarctic. Yeah, see, that's what I was. I was going to say so. West Coast, and me and you are thinking more like a Pacific kind of vibe. Like, fuck the South. I'll take the sweet tea. That's about it. You they got just don't want to admit it. They don't want to admit it. No, I mean, so if you told me I could live anywhere in the country, dude, the only reason I don't live up north is because of the winters. I can't fucking do the winters. That's right. That's right. So I'd probably like if I. Okay, could so why don't you live on the West Coast? Well, cost of living. And then it's also like, that's annoying because, I mean, you still have to think about like family and everything being like <laughs> back on the East Coast. So that is kind of annoying. But if none of that was an issue, San Diego, bro, posted for the rest of my life. Holla at your boy. You can float me out the Pacific Ocean. I'll be in San Diego. I think it's a region that a lot of people are from and then leave and don't come back. And so we have a lot of people who leave and don't come back to help their communities and like get yeah, us out of yeah you garrison well i mean he's in the south no, i moved so. deeper bro i moved deeper. <laughs> he's probably in an area that needs more help to be honest next <laughs> but, level but like i but i think that's something that the south does you know suffer from not just the south the midwest probably as well like it's just people leave and midwest go to other areas boy, they're, they're a different kind of breed but i just i you know i like the south i think there's a lot to you know, offer here and i think it, you know, I would ideally like to stay here and whenever I eventually run for office would like to do that down here and special place, special place in my heart. You could be a Dixie crap. Yeah. Blue dog. <laughs> all right, guys. That's, uh, that's all. I, so that's, uh, that's everything I got. It's going to get kind of quiet, right? Going into uh summer recess. So don't really expect much. It's going to be a lot of bullshit headlines that are just clickbait, but we say don't watch Fox news, get your vaccine. Stay Monitor woke. your sleep. Okay. Good sleep. That's the foundation for everything. And drink some water. I know. I know it's hot girl summer, so make sure you drink some drink water. Some water. Whatever right. your part, hot girl, hot vax, white boy, whatever, whatever, whatever you want. Hey, because on this side, we don't care, bro. <laughs> I'm not just worried drink about water. It. Just drink just, water. Just drink your fucking water and don't watch fake weather news. <laughs> Cut. <laughs>